There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester, and we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is the Queen of Shops, best known for her retail and business shows, her creative agency and her appointment by the then Prime Minister David Cameron to lead a review into the future of Britain's high streets. The sight of her bright orange bob and vertiginous heels caused shopkeepers to tremble either in delight or horror as she dispensed her honest advice. She is, of course, Mary Portis. The middle of five children, she had a stable, happy childhood growing up in Watford, until two tragedies meant that she had to give up her dreams of becoming an actress to look after her younger brother. We once asked her how she had become so successful, and she replied, Empathy. I understood how it felt to be penniless and lost, and I knew the importance of shopping, even when everything else has disappeared. Mary, thank you very much for joining us. Your hair is actually now blonde, isn't it? So it looks fantastic, but it must take some getting used to every morning. <laughs> um, it's blonde and grey, actually. Um, <laughs> I, I'm embracing. I'm embracing this time of life, as it were. Yeah, I, I was in lockdown and everyone thought it was just so funny sending pictures to me saying, what are you going to do about your hair? And um, I had to do a, um, a, a TV interview in the news and I and, um, remember ringing my hairdressers going, well, I'll do it in the garden, Mary, I'll get the colourist round. And then I suddenly just felt, no, this is my next sort of stage in my life. I'm not going to do this anymore. And, um, yeah, it felt like I, I was sort of, it was, it was my past. It was a time, it was a place, it was a look, it was me then, but it's not now. And what about heels? Are you still wearing them or is it now just trainers and wellies? Well, who's wearing heels around the house? <laughs> it is it is trainers I'm afraid and and um yeah and and I've actually do you know what I've got on today I've got an old pair of um, very old Marnie M-A-R-N-I mules that were like clogs and they're fantastic so you know I'm all about recycling and upcycling girls so th these ones are about 15 years old what about shopping do you like shopping online or have you missed the actual shops as much as everyone else I don't really like shopping that much. I know that. <laughs> and that that's the truth. I love, I suppose it's the interaction when I see great product, great people who know about the product in a great space that just gives that little joy into your heart. Then to me, that is what I call great shopping. We have gone through, I think, the last 30 years of pretty mediocre retailing, and we lost that joy. And I'm not just talking about the small businesses, although most of the small businesses have had to put that at the center of, of their businesses because the interaction with people 
is so important. So I do some online stuff on a practical sense. It isn't anywhere near as joyful if you get a great shopping experience. Sadly, though, most shopping experiences weren't joyful. And I know we've seen a huge amount of big retailers, you know, go down over the last well, certainly the last year, but somehow I'm kind of can't wait for this new creative explosion that's going to happen because I think we're going to see some really great innovation happening back in retail, particularly digitally and physically, because I think the big, big players that were just pumping stuff at us for years just made it deeply boring, quite frankly. So I haven't loved it. I love it when it's great, but it's not something that's, oh, I must go and do shopping for a kick. It's probably the last thing I'd choose to do. What did you feel when companies like Topshop went under? Did you Was it nostalgic or did you feel that it was time for a change and move on? No, you see, I think there are the businesses have a lifespan. There's no two ways about it. Some that disappears early. I think it was tragic when Woolworths went down because, I mean, actually, if you looked at what Woolworths was, initially what that business was was serving you know, people with everything under under a cent it was. That was the original, everything you could buy under one roof. Now, the pound shop replaced that without the soul of Woolworths. But Woolworths was really missed, and, and I, I thought that was a terrible miss. Topshop, what it stood for culturally was fantastic. It was iconic. I trained there. Jane Shepherdson and I were both on the um, little management training scheme there together at the same age. And it had a vibrancy and it had a rhythm and it had a frequency and an energy that was extraordinary. You know, the music would be pumping out. You'd go down those escalators. There was always something new. And I think girls still want that. I think the however, however, and I think this is really important, at the heart of these businesses needs to be a true understanding of those girls, how they are living this was Topshop's market I'm talking about, particularly here, mm. what their frequency is, what their rhythms of life is and what inspires them. And I think sadly what happened with that was, you know, we had an organisation that was operationally slick but without soul. And I think it's a real miss. I think that site where it is is going to be a real miss. We all met there over the years and it was iconic. But, you know, we all know the reasons why it happened. And, you know, you know these, these businesses that were run by people like... Sir Philip were the ones who were knighted for making a lot of money. That that's what you got knighted for, making a truckload of cash, um, but not actually giving anything back or creating social progress or doing anything for society. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure those are going to be the businesses we'll see in the future. Well, we won't. That's what we will have learned through COVID. And how's your youngest son, Horatio? Have you been homeschooling him? Oh God, I did the first lot. Honestly, I nearly put myself over the edge. It was one <laughs> point where I was doing a radio foreship. I was doing a podcast. I'm writing a book on rebuild, how to rebuild back better businesses and my agency. And I was doing homeschooling and I honestly found it just so incredibly difficult. An eight year old, you know, it's very difficult. So everybody had to to key in. But sorry, the last lockdown, I had to say, you know, sorry to the ex-wife, ease yours (laughs) off you. <laughs> gleefully handed him over. I, I I found it just at first it was all like, oh yes, let's go and lovely up the hill and we'll draw a picture and we're going to learn about the plants. And then I was like, <laughs> I actually it was just too much. I, I couldn't do it. And I, I I've read 
you know, women who have got businesses and women have really suffered through this because the, the, the lion's share has been on their shoulders unbelievably. Um, and it's just been extraordinarily difficult. I mean, when the schools opened up, I mean, we were running it through the gates with him, running. <laughs> <laughs> but we want to take you back to your own childhood. And it sounds like a very happy childhood to begin with in a large Irish family just outside London in Watford. And what was your mother like? Was she very strict or was she quite entertaining? Oh, she was a mix of both. She was um, she was a very strong woman, fiery redhead, you know. Um, you didn't mess with my mother. You know, she, I, I remember was trying to get by and doing something and she'd find you out. And I think, why did I even try that? You know, she's, she was on it. She was a fiercely about education. Um, and so, you know, she came over from Ireland and her whole thing was, you know, I'm going to educate these kids. And I was lucky enough that, you know, through the Catholic Church, that was the only lucky thing about the Catholic Church, that um, the education system that they had with these grammar schools that were often run by the monks or the nuns. So my brothers were all shipped off to um, Salvatorian uh, College in, in Harrow, and I was St. Joan of Arc School. But my mother was, I mean, she'd be teaching us algebra, and she would be reading poetry to me and talking about John Donne, and you'd think, how did this little woman, you know, she, was, she wasn't so small, but from a farming family, her, my, my grandfather was a farmer, but he also was a poet and played the violin. So, you know, but she, to her, this was education, education was, was the way forward. And I remember vividly my sister coming home and saying, Mom, I looked at the register and I was number two in the class, and she and who was number one? <laughs> 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 you didn't get away with much. Um, so great. And, and, you know, I'm grateful to her for that. An extraordinary strong, a, a multifaceted woman. And, and um, yeah, very lucky, which gave me a great start in life. And were you the naughtiest of the family? You know quite well I was the naughtiest. Of the <laughs> I really, really was. I think, you know, looking back, I don't know. Um, my mother did say to me, God, if I had you first, I think I'd have stopped, which was in my mind forever. <laughs> I was number four. But I think a lot of it was to do with the fact of where I was. I remember so vividly thinking I'm not the eldest child. You know, Michael was always, you know, the, we used to, he was always precious and clever and did everything so beautifully. And then my sister was the firstborn daughter. So I got her hand-me-downs and then my brother, Joe. And then I was sort of stuck in the middle and then Lawrence was the baby. And I remember not feeling I had a place. Um, and so I just put up with, you know, just trying to express myself, which in the end, the stage was my gift. I suddenly thought, this is where I'm meant to be, you know. I, and I stood on the stage when I was 13 and and got given a little, you know, role in um, some school play. Uh, and but I, I so I was always probably wanting attention. Um, and, and, and I so I, I, whether it was good or bad, as long as I got it, you know. So, yes, I was very naughty. <laughs> and was your father around much? Because he was a sales manager, wasn't he? Or was your mother always the centre of your universe? Oh, she was definitely the centre of the universe. But I mean, he was very prominent. I mean, you know, he was very strong, very tall, six foot two man and very handsome man, you know. So, but he wasn't very touchy feeling. I remember he, we'd go off to church and I'd want to hold his hand. And it was so big, you know, but it was unusual to have that, you know, physical touch from my father. Um, and and he was very much the role of, you know, he was the one making the money. And so it's all hushed tones when dad came in um, to the house. And um, you felt that, that that power, that male power, which was set the tone, you know, and if he was in a bad mood, you felt it. But he was also deeply playful. And I don't want to be unfair to him. He was a playful man. So he would, you know, get out and, and kick football with my brothers in his shoes. There wasn't such a thing as trainers in the 70s, 60s and 70s, in your <laughs> shoes, playing football. Or say, 
I'll race you all around the block. And he would run, you know, we'd all be running with him. So he, he was a spirited, funny individual, witty and clever. But um, she was definitely the backbone who ran everything. Then one day when your father was travelling, your mother fell ill. Can you just tell us what happened? Yeah, um, I had just finished my O-levels. It was the summer and um, I came home from school and I remember it was a really hot summer. Um, and um, my brother, Michael, said, Mum's in bed. And I'm like, oh, she's not well. Uh, now, I never know my mother to ever be in bed. I remember Christmas that she had the flu and, you know, still coming out and doing everything. And um, I said, really? And he said, she's really, you know, not well. <clears throat> and um, I knew she'd not been well. She'd had this sort of head cold. She was complaining about headaches. But I was 16. You know, you kind of don't take notice at all. You know, I was in my world, great, just finishing my O-levels, going to meet my pals afterwards. We were going to play a game of tennis. And I remember going back to the house to get the tennis racket and eat. And I said, I'll pop up and see her. And I I went up into her bedroom and I said, Mommy, I'm going up the road. I remember I was going out with my friend Geraldine. I'm, I'm going up to play tennis. And um, should I get you some lemonade? You know, and she said, what's lemonade? I remember this really cold thing. I was like, Mum, Mummy, lemonade. She's gone, oh, yeah, yeah, but she started to ramble. And I just remember thinking, I've got to get out of the room. I was so frightened. I'm just like, and all I could think of is she having a breakdown because I knew an aunt that had suffered with depression. I was thinking, is it that? And I remember running downstairs and um, my sister was away on holiday. She'd left and it was her first holiday with, with away with her girlfriend. So she was 18. Michael um, was at university, but had come back for the summer. And Lawrence, my younger brother, is only 14. So he was out playing with friends. And I remember saying, Michael, mommy, stop talking sense. And he said, I know, it doesn't look good. And I remember going off to play tennis. And then my father was away. And um, coming back, he rang that night. And my brother going, mommy's not really not well at all. She's just not, you know. And he was like, oh, well, I'll be back in, in two days. Just keep an eye on her. And um, within within a day, she was just talking complete nonsense. And... Um, we knew something was really wrong. So Michael was driving, got her into the car. And um, this is how crazy it is. We were ringing the doctor's surgery and they wouldn't come out. I, oh I, I look back at her, you know, they were like, bring her down, oh. bring her down. Oh. Mm. And I remember sitting in the car and just, and also, you know, this is just so awful, but that embarrassment that my mother was sitting in the, in the, in the room, the waiting room, talking rubbish and people were looking and I'm like, this is my mother. You know, it was that awful 16 mm. year old where you're in this state of shock, but you're also embarrassment and you don't know what to do. Then you don't know how to manage this at all. And he, the doctor said, she's going through the menopause and she's obviously oh. it's affected oh. her mentally. Yeah. Then um, sent her back sent her back home with us with with um I can't even remember what tablets he gave her and she got worse than my brother found an ambulance and she was taken very speedily in and they actually said it was meningitis but then encephalitis um yeah and so she died two weeks later oh my goodness it must have been terrifying because there just weren't any adults who were taking you seriously was that the thing that must was the most frightening for you really that that sense that everything was out of control and no one was there to help Yes, yes. I saw, you know, I talk about this in, in my, my, my autobiography, but the, the power that the church held, the power that the doctor held, the power that the teachers held, you know, where parents didn't question. Not that they shouldn't um, 
have, you know, some sense of authority in what they do. Of course, of course. But my parents' generation, she didn't question that. So what the doctor said, you know, or the priest, you know, you, you listened. If the teacher said this, you listened. And and um, and I, 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 my father was like, well, if that's what the doctor said when he came home, you know, that's what she's got. And you're like, what? Well, you know. And so my brother was, thank God more alert and um but but yes it was you know there was it was I'm I don't you look I could look back and say oh god if, if we'd have got her in she'd have survived but this was her journey and this is my journey you know I've looked at that in life because you can end up really just painting yourself so deeply over this and who told you she had died how did you find out so she went into the hospital and we used to go and visit her Every afternoon when my father got back, we'd all go down and um, but she went into a coma. So it was just really waiting for her to recover. And then we got a phone call one afternoon and they said, would you come down? And uh, I thought I didn't. We just thought she'd taken a turn for the worse. The doctor wants to see us. And they told us that she passed away half an hour before. It must have been so shattering, but you were then left with your younger brother and your father. How was that? Were they, was anyone able to help you in any way at all? Or did you feel totally stranded and alone? I think it felt more lonely because my sister then went off to, uh, to, to UCH to train. And she, so she left home. It was that summer. She was 18. So she just left. Michael went back to university. Joe had started work. So he was out of the house. So my father, I was left from this sort of vibrant house of all these children, it felt like, you know, not only the death of my mother, it just felt this completely different place. And my father, all of this, his, you know, reliance on my mother just showed up so painfully. You know, he just became, he went into such grief that that became the focus, you know, he would come home and just cry and play old music that she and her, her he and she used to listen to in our front living room and I would be left with Lawrence trying to make dinner or manage the house and it just was it just I, I can even physically kind of feel and smell it you know it just felt like this is not my home this is not it was just a horrible pain of not knowing where you were this this cotton wool existence being put on to run the house at 16 and 14 if, you know Lawrence and I with a father who just removed himself into a place of grief and also slight, you know, what am I going to do with my life? I'm 50, you know, he'd say, I'm 50. And you'd think, yeah, well, we're 16 and 14. And he'd say, you've got your life ahead. And he wasn't looking at these two young people who were in grief. And, and I look at it now and think, I, I remember my headmistress calling me in and saying, you know, wonderfully, you know, we're here if you need anything. But that was kind of it. Um, and it just felt like, I also felt, I do remember thinking, but I am 16, I'm old enough, I should be able to do this, you know. So it's a very dark few years and I, I don't remember too much. And, and <clears throat> interesting, sometimes we talk about it, my siblings and I, and we all have different memories of it. But one for sure is that it was a closure of the first part of your life. It was a closure of your childhood, it was a closure of family. It was a closure of those wonderful spirited times of um, that lovely infrastructure and web of security that just went 
And your father met another woman soon after the funeral, didn't he? That must have just been ghastly for you, the idea that he felt he could move on and leave you behind. I think we were, we slightly pushed that that way. I remember my um, sister's boyfriend, his mother said, you need to get him out. He needs to go out. And uh, there were these little clubs, you know, for widows and widowers that they'd meet. And um, he came home one day with this ghastly woman and within sort of six months said, I'm going to marry her, married her, left us in the family home and moved in with her into her home and used to come around once a week and leave money for us to get our food shopping. And, you know, we were like, you know, so this is what, 17 and a half and Lawrence would have been not even 16. Was it hard to forgive him? Have you forgiven him or do you still feel angry with him? No, we've forgiven him. Both Lawrence and I, it was Lawrence and I who really got affected. Lawrence wrote a letter to say that he'd forgiven him. Because mm. you, I mean, you were effectively homeless. What happened? Did you have to live, sort of move in with other people or did you manage to keep the family home or how did you have the finances? So what happened was, is he died. He died nine months later of a heart attack. So she got our family home. She'd been married to him nine months. So we all had to move out. Oh, my goodness. So we, none of us remember the day moving out. And it's such a trauma because we all, Tish, we were, at the weekends, my sister used to come back. She was um, staying in London, so she was at UCH. So she'd come back. Michael would come back. So we'd all be together at the weekends. It was something I looked forward to. So we all had to clear our family home. But none of us has one memory at all of leaving that house. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm. So where did you go and live? Well, I did a TED talk on this in kindness and um, it's always the people who have so little who come in, isn't it? Mm. So when my father came over from Ireland, he had two friends, Don McInerney and Harry McCann. And um, Harry and Sheila married a woman called Sheila, had four kids and they put us up in their house, three bedroom, semi-detached council house, four kids and brought us in. And you once said that the shopkeepers helped to feed you and your brother and sort of gave you bits of uniform. And when you came off the bus, they were there. Did that engender your sort of love of retail in any way, do you find? I mean, did you feel that the high street was there for you in an extraordinary way? I've always talked about this. Yes, of course, I'm sure that in my heart, that was somewhere where this was a web of security, that there was a place where when I got off a bus, you knew the faces of the people, the, the shopkeepers. It wasn't a faceless, closed up you know, space. Um, it, and so that to me was a saviour of, of those. I'd go into the butchers and he'd say, this is what your mother had on a Wednesday. And the greengrocer would leave in little notes on how to steam stuff. I had no idea why I was. Mm. That, that was, I remember the, there was a tiny little boots uh, at chemist and, the, and Jenny who worked there, you know, who was my mother's age, used to come out and just give me a hug and go, how are you going, kid? Because my mother would pop in there. So this isn't nostalgia. When I talk about this, this is this is a human need that we've let go in our chase for capitalism. We've created retail parks and we say this is what people want. Have you ever been to a retail park off off the side of some motorway gray spaces where they build places that sell stuff? And we go, yeah, that's what we want. No, no, we let it go. We let it go in our chase for selling more stuff, for cheaper spaces where these huge out-of-town places could be built, and we let this go. And here's the beauty of what's happened in COVID, is we've realised the importance of it. 
that actually we need that. And that little web of security and that connection with a place is what value is today. It's not just about cheap stuff and how much stuff that we can be buying. So that is why I will constantly fight for high streets to be a part of how we live. I mean, there's some incredible stuff that's going on across the world on this. We're having to do it now where they're looking at 15-minute cities where you can have all your needs within a 15-minute walk or cycle. We've been pushed into this. So it will happen if we get government that actually understands this and realises um, that it's not just about plonking more housing there. We need these places that feed our needs and lives. And that is what helped me through a time. And I, and I looked at my kids, um, Milo and Verity, when they were that age, 16 and 14. And I was like, if something happened to me, would you know the people locally in the shops? Would you, or do you have to drive out some faces place or go online to just get this delivered? Very different. Mm. You know, we talk about it takes a village to raise a child. It does. It does. And I think that's one thing we've learned through this time. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the retail guru, Mary Portis. We'll be back after this. To celebrate the beginning of spring, save 50% on full digital access to The Times and The Sunday Times for six months and stay well informed on the latest stories. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash sale forward slash past imperfect and subscribe today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, Mary Queen of Shops, Mary Portis. To lose two parents within two years feels, it must have been terrible, had a terrible impact on you. Did it feel as if the world was just incredibly cruel? No, I never felt that. Never felt that. I don't know. I've never felt I've been in a cruel world. I've never felt... I've had anything less. I've felt incredibly lucky. And what happened to your stepmother? Oh, God knows. <laughs> I bumped into her. I did. I, t- I remember years later when I gave birth to Milo and Verity. And um, <laughs> I was, 
with my husband and I had um, these little babies. So, you know, there's only 20 months between Milo and Verity and um, I had Milo and Verity was playing out crying. So Graham said, I'll go out with the baby. And as I turned the corner, she was there. So I was with Milo, this little toddler and, and my heart just went pumping. And it's that moment of you where you, where you think, shall I just walk past or shall I say something? And she said, hello. I said, it's Mary. She had no idea. I looked differently than the scraggy little thing at 16 who was going through trauma and pain. And she said, I'm sorry. I said, Sam's daughter, Mary. It's Mary Newton. She went, Mary, how are you? This, how are you? I said, I'm really fantastic. This is my son, Milo. And my husband's outside with my little daughter. And I'm well and my life is happy. Are you able to say the same about yours after all you took from us? I hope you are. And I turned and I walked so fast. And as I got out, I just broke down crying. And this grief and this pain of so many years went through me. My husband thought I'd been had up for shoplifting or something weird had happened. There, <laughs> but I, it, was, it, it was as if I just, I didn't, want, I didn't want to just be bitter, but I just wanted to know I was in a safe place. I was in safety. Um, and I had these children I'd love. I was all right. I wanted her to know that. But I don't think you can ever forgive what you do. Oh, well, I wouldn't have been able to ever live with myself had I done what she did. Because you also had to sacrifice quite a lot for your career in a way because you you got into RADA and you were going to be an actress. You wanted to be an actress. What happened? Did you feel you had to give that up really because of what had happened to you? Well, to go to RADA, I'd have had to go into London. Um, a, I didn't have the, the money. I had no support, no financial support. Uh, Lawrence would have been left out. Where's he going to be? Mm. So this was just, you know, it was just an awful mix. And I thought, I can't. The two of us were in this together. Mm. Uh, also, on top of that, though, I think, which is vitally important, I remember going for my audition for RADA. And, you know, you want this free time, most people of going into RADA. You're expressing yourself, you know, you want to be an actor. And I remember thinking, I can't. I didn't feel free enough to connect with deeply with myself in order to perform. I said, I'm not going to be able to do this. I just didn't. I was in grief. I was in, I was just surviving and I put on an outward shell and I don't think I was ready to take that off. Do you regret now missing out on those teenage years in the early 20s and the partying and the having fun? Or do you realise that it just gave you some sort of resilience that you wouldn't have had otherwise? I think it did. I mean, I don't regret it. I've never done drugs, so I missed out on all that. And everyone's going, ooh, but I've never done that, didn't I? <laughs> but it, I, mean, I didn't do any. I never, you know, I was, I never went into that crazy space of clubbing. You know, I did when I, I started at Harrods, I'd go, but I never found that ever fed my soul anyway. It was never like, whoa, whoa. I, I, I don't know. I didn't ever feel that that was me. I, I really do feel I've missed out on time where I've been able to, to discover who I was. I think it took a long time to discover my, my soul, my energy, my, my, who I truly was um, because I was surviving. And when you survive, you just create this modus operandi that just keeps going. And I mm. felt I could do anything, you know, in any problem. I took on, took on, took on, took on, took on. And I do look, I think I know, I don't think I ever stop. I don't think I really ever even... <laughs> now have taken that time where I'm just going to be about me. Uh, yes, where you really have that time where you're free. No, 
I've never had that. Do I regret it? I don't have any regrets at all. It would be nice to feel it at some point. And by the age of 30, you were creative director and on the board of Harvey Nichols. Did work in a way become your salvation and your way to escape those teenage traumas? Yes. I mean, I think I found what was fantastic there is, you know, it was... I found where I was meant to be. And, and the job that I had was an ex, a creative expression with huge, you know, lump of commerce behind it. But I loved the mix of that. So I loved putting my business head on, but actually being free to experiment and use my creativity. Because I think the two, you know, it's like a physics and a chemistry. I, I love the chemistry of, of business. I, I enjoyed the physics. I knew the physics, but the chemistry is what made it exciting for me. And I think um, and I was free. It was interesting, actually, that because I I went in when it was a loss making business and they had to we had to turn it around. And so it was experimenting and just doing what I wanted. It was the first time I truly felt I was connecting with my energy and being who I was and creating this frequency and work that just, you know, became very, very well known and actually made the brand very famous. So and I think that's why I ended up being on the board. And interestingly, though, <clears throat> Once I got onto the board, that's when you constrain yourself and you go back in because you think you've got to play this role and you've got to play the role of the physics and uh, up and be this alpha person who's on a business board. And I actually found out that found that, that was the worst thing to do to me because I, I lost that creative spirit in doing so, which is why I left. And did you become too much of a workaholic, do you think? Do you, I mean, you must have been working absolutely flat out the whole time. Do you think in retrospect that probably wasn't the right thing to do? Or do you feel in the 80s and 90s that's what it was all about? I don't think I was a workaholic. I don't think I've ever been a workaholic. I work in a very, I think the word's peripatetic. I know it's physically peripatetic, but I think mentally I, I do lots of small things that with an energy. And it feeds me and it's how I like to operate. So... Uh, but I'm not one of those. I'll put, you know, 5.30, do my yoga, do a call to chakra. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. You know, there's women that used to put always on the front cover of the Sunday Times. Yes, you can have it all. And you know <laughs> you can't. So I'm really not that. And I'm always amazed at people that tragically work on their laptop for hours and hours. My brain won't work like that. It would That would really, really eke my little soul out. So I don't do that. So I'm one that does lots of things and you know I nip in and out and and I put an infrastructure underneath me of people that pick up the balls and are brilliant and, and I couldn't be without them so but I'm not a workaholic and I'm, I, I don't like that I wouldn't like to think that I'm I'm losing out on on you know doing stuff that feeds me whether that's reading poetry or whether that's going to see a play or whether that's you know being outside walking with the dog I, I I couldn't limit myself to just work that would make me a deeply boring person I know it would and it would actually just suppress me so no I wasn't a workaholic but if I loved what I was doing I wanted to be the best and I'd keep on at it until I got it to a great great place and I loved that but that was joy that was joy um, but I didn't ever compromise my children. Um, so I was always at their sports days. I made sure I put them to bed at night. I made sure I had supper with them. And there were times where I was like, like <clears throat> to get back when you're caught with meetings, of course. But I, I would never, I don't think for women as a workaholic. Was it hard reaching the age your mother was when she died? Mm. Yes, I, yes. My sister and I both talk about that. 
How did you feel? I felt okay. It wasn't me so much, actually. My daughter went through a terrible year of fear on that, where you know, in, she wasn't so much different age till when she hit 16 she was like mama mama please 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 look after yourself and she got quite right um it's gone into the family that this you know this trauma did hit and you know she was really um troubled by it you know to the extent that a friend of mine used to just meet with her and talk with her and did you know this just sort of reiki and energized her and and she got through it but it was her who took it more than anything did you always feel that you didn't have much time after that? That there was a sense that life is short and you just had to pack it in. No, I don't. I don't. No, I don't do that. I, I, I do. I tell you what, I do. I don't. Um, I don't compromise on my life. So, I have the sort of the analogy or the metaphor of going to the theatre. If the play's not great, I won't go back in for the second half. <laughs> And I, and my life's out. I'm like, well, if this isn't making me, and I know I can sit with something, and I, I can feel in my 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 frequency in my soul that this isn't making me happy so I will change so I have a lot of change in my life I'll move on I'll shift I'll go there I'll do this so I don't think oh it's got to be packed in I think I am so not going to settle and compromise um that might be the same thing I don't know I've not analyzed that but I'm I I really do throw the cards up in the air if this isn't working and that gives me um, to, to, to create that sense of harmony in myself and joy, because I think, why would I compromise? Why am I going to settle? So maybe it's much the same. And you were happily married to Graham, uh, you know, legal executive for years and you had two children. Did you have a sense that you wanted to give them that stable, normal, happy life, as it were, that you didn't have as a child? Did, were you always craving to create that? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, to the extent I think I went a little bit over the top with it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I really, really did. Um, and uh, what did and, you do? Well, it would just be that I'm always one. So it would be um, that you know, family was really important. So high holidays, whatever it was, Christmas, come Easter, everyone had to be round. We were going to do those lunches, Sunday lunches, and my brothers would be like, "Oh God, Mary's on the phone again." You know, I was like, "Come on, <laughs> uncles up." <clears throat> yeah, and it was a, I mean, it was a joyful place. I I've always done that though and so I, I thought that was just important that they knew family that there was this you know this this infrastructure that was there constantly for them and so I became the matriarch in the family you know and everybody would come to me at Christmas and it'd be planned and exactly and if anybody was like uh Mary I've got to go here what do you mean <laughs> well you can't go on holiday then that's ridiculous we've all got to be together for the so I you know, they we laugh now. Um, it's still been going on, but um, so yes, that was really important. But I also, you know, was when 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 he and when Graham and I separated, I also wasn't willing to just say I'm going to sit settle when we're both unhappy here. This isn't working. I'm not going to settle because that's not going to give me the joy to give them the joy. Quite simply, that and we can do this and have a, a familial relationship and still be in each other's lives, but not married. So even that, you know, it took, I, I prioritised absolutely how we were going to do that with the children. And when you met Melanie, did you instantly know that you wanted to be with her? Um, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Very powerfully so, yeah. And um, yes, and that was quite a change. See how I like change, girls? <laughs> um, that was quite a change in life. And also at a time, um, I was, you know, going a, a bit of a public figure, but not as much as I later became. But, you know, this really was, there were very few 
single sex relationships um, at my children's schools, parents, um, very unusual. You know, I'm talking about what we're talking about now, 2003. Um, so it was quite a thing to change too, not just for me, but for how I brought my children through that as well. And how did they feel about it? What did they say? Well, they were young, and well, I, there's a there's a there's a really wonderful story um, that I tell. I did the opening speech at Pride, and uh, I, I opened with this story because I think it was really important that you know I talked about what love was, and um, I remember so vividly. So Verity was seven. And uh, she was at her little school and her friend was leaving to go to another school. And I remember it so vividly that we were sitting at the table and I was I was dating Mel, but they didn't quite know. You know, I was seeing Mel and I was being slowly introducing her into the family. And we're sitting at the supper table and Milo's there, Verity's next to me and she's writing this little card. And I this very Catholic nanny, very Catholic nanny, um, who was sitting there very seriously eating her supper. And Verity was writing a card and she just said to me, how do you spell lesbian? <laughs> and I remember just sort of thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm giving off these pheromones to my child. And I, this sort of confusion. Like, What's she writing? And so I remember, and Milo said, yeah, Verity's a lesbian. I said, oh, right, okay. <laughs> this, is, this is all going a bit weird. Anyway, um, so I give her the spelling and I just, L-E-S-B-I-A-N. I'm thinking, what's going in the card? What's going in the card? You know, And I'm thinking, God, this mother is going to read this card that my daughter's sending to her daughter. And I know this mother, she's quite straight and quite straight. Anyway, I picked up the card after we'd cleared supper and I read it and it was so sweet. She said, I am so going to miss you. You are like a sunflower, beautiful little energy. You make me happy. I love you. Love, Verity. P.S. Lesbian. <laughs> so <laughs> my, my producer, Pat Llewellyn, said that's the title of your autobiography. Yeah, <laughs> I just thought it was brilliant. But it summed up to me, she, this to her, the word lesbian meant love. Right. right? Uh, that, and that was beautiful. I, I remember doing this talk at Prime saying, so when we, she, I eventually said, look, mummy, you know, is, is in love with a woman. And I explained it to her. And she thought this was fantastic and told lots of people at school. And then she came home one day, you know, she was about nine saying, I'm being teased, mummy, they're saying about you. And I was like, yeah, don't, you know, she was feeling sad for me um, because they were saying, mm, your mother's gay, which was the worst thing you could say in a playground to anyone. You're gay. You're, you remember that? That mm -hmm. awful thing. She's so gay. And Milo found that very difficult. And so I, when Milo went to um, Westminster School and, and he was starting, I rang every mother. I said, I want you to know I'm in a relationship with a woman. I want you to tell your son. And they were like, oh, of course, of course, of course, of course. <sighs> so that I didn't want him. And he, he never, he didn't have one day's. Uh, teasing, he said, but um, it was it wasn't easy at first. But you married Mel, didn't you? In one of the first, well, the very first gay marriages, that must have felt really incredible, didn't it, at the time? Oh yeah, it was. It was fantastic, and 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 you know, just proud to be in a country that was allowed, you know, that that realised that this is what we should be doing. It's crazy that we even you know still talking. about well, it's still a big issue worldwide, which is just utterly, utterly crazy. You wrote a book called Work Like a Woman. Do you think there is an equal balance yet? Or do you think things in some ways are going backwards now? Well, I think when we look at the stats of what's happened in COVID and the amount of women who 
percentage-wise who have lost their jobs and are taking this is huge compared to men. I don't know the stat off the top of my head. I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Um, and the amount of uh, care that's taken, the women are p picking it up. I think this has really not been great for women, that's for sure. Um, you know, this is, it was a manifesto for change. I think the manifesto was more about how we can also change culture in business from this linear, individualistic, alpha way of working. Um, and most men don't really want to work like that. So um, it's interesting. It, it's had huge traction. And, and so many people have written books, you know, subsequently, probably some that are much better. But and, you know, this this is something that we need to keep on the agenda constantly, constantly. And, and the businesses, the, the big thing is, is that most women don't want to work within corporations that quite frankly are run in an alpha way. And that's what we have to shift. We have to shift the way business is done, which is on to my next book, girls. <laughs> well, that's why, I mean, the pandemic has allowed us to consider a different way of living. It's been tragic in so many ways, but you know, we have been thinking about working at home or only 14% of people actually want to go into an office full time. Do you think now is the time when we can really embrace quite a lot of your ideas? I think it totally is. And, you know, there was a wonderful um, philosopher called Gershom Sholem who talks about the plastic hours. And often that's when you have a time to make change happens because of something that's happened. He, he wrote this after the Holocaust, you know, saying this is the time where there is a window where you say we will never go back to the way we were. And this is the plastic hours where we can change these times. And we are in that now. Um, and I think... Um, we need to look at what the way that we will live will has fundamentally changed. I do think that businesses need to be careful not wanting to open up offices because I think the well-being and the social connection, particularly for the younger generation, is vital. Um, so I think there is going to be a balance. But I think, you know, the cost cutting would be easy to say we all work from home. But what do you miss out? It's again like saying, you know, we don't need our local high streets and our shops. What do you miss out? And you have to understand what that value is. So I think there is going to be a change. I think people will be coming out with great and new ways of working. And I think um, we are with something that's come out. I call it the COVID cleanse, you know, and the COVID conscience that's come out of this is that we've realized, you know, so much that we it's about we and not me anymore that we really, this is about us on a world level as we, this has affected everybody. And therefore it's made us rethink how we are connecting with people, how we are living our lives, what we are doing to this planet as well, and what we are doing for our own well-being and what's important to us. And are you pleased now that you didn't go to RADA? Because in a way you would have made a great actress, but in some ways you're still performing, but in a way that connects to the real world. Do you think it's been more fulfilling, perhaps, the way things worked out? Well, you wouldn't. I'd never know. I don't have any regrets. I've had an extraordinary time. And um, my life is always really very interesting. And what well, I find it interesting. And, you know, I, I, I'm always excited and waking up to think about what I'm doing next. So it, it was my journey. I don't I can't say, you know, um, and of course, I've put performative into the heart of what I do, whether that's on TV, whether that's doing radio, whether that's me presenting to clients, you know, it's at the heart of what I do. But I think through the business link, I've been able to, and through my public um, persona, 
hopefully have a voice that will enable change for the better. And I, I look back and I think, you know, I was given that business training and I've been given a platform through the media, TV and radio, to become a public figure. And I think that's all coming together in what I see my role now as a 60-year-old woman is to actually do something that is really going to make a change and talk about this. So on my book, Rebuild, is how, you know, a, a cry for business, like I did in Work Like a Woman, to think about what we're doing for people and this planet and to change you know what the tenets of capitalism without a conscience were and if I can use that then I'd like to you know when I do go clogging it in my old um in my deathbed then at least I think I've done something with all that I learned where I was you know selling and helping businesses sell more stuff to a planet that quite frankly didn't need it and it's a bit of a mea culpa and do you think that being on your own when you're in your late teens gave you that impetus to succeed that you had to provide for your brother you had a reason that you had to work yes it's utterly there was no way out I remember so vividly um when I was at Harvey Nichols you know a girl coming in to hand a notice in and it was a fantastic job that won the creative teams. And I said, why are you going? She said, oh, I just fancy three months out. And you know, I might go with you then if you were. And I was like, oh, my God, I have, don't have that choice. I was so, I hadn't even thought that you could take three months out to do whatever. Because there was never that choice for me. And I think that did. You know, I just was there and make, making a success because I had no, no option. Even when you have, you know, I was times where I had to have bosses who were complete arseholes, you know, and you'd love to walk. I couldn't. I had to keep my, you know, I had to make the money. And I think I learned through that. I learned how to compromise. I learned how to negotiate. I learned um, how to work around that situation and make their, shine some of their egos. Um, you, you just, you, you learn to be adaptable or to survive. And if you could go back to yourself when you were 16 and your mother had just died what would you say to yourself how would you reassure yourself I yeah it's a difficult one isn't it I mean it's a, it, it I would just say I, I think of you know Verity at 16 standing there what I was saying to her and how much that um it's okay the world will always take care of you you are going to be safe you're going to be loved and the world will take care of you so go out there and just do your best kid Mary Porters, thank you very much for talking to us. Always a pleasure, girls. Take care. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, Mary Porters. This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. For those of you who haven't heard the rest of this series, and even those of you who have, don't forget that you can listen back to us on the Times Radio app. And you can download episodes from wherever else you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to leave a comment and subscribe when you do. That's it from us for this series, but we hope to welcome you back for another Past Imperfect very soon. Thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.